excited for today. I say that every Sunday, I think, but I really am. I mean it. It's not just uh, something uh, that's in the pastor's handbook that you have to say. I, I love being here. I love you. I love this church, and I love what God is doing. I want to invite you this morning, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, entitled Shout, God Has Given You the City which is not just the title of this series, but it is the title or the theme uh, for our year. This is what I believe God is leading us in as a church, what he's directing us to, uh, to focus in on uh, over the, the course of this next year. Uh, this is the fourth message in this series, and I want to invite you, if you've missed any of the, the preceding messages, they're available on the church website to listen. Uh, the MP3s there, you can download it and put it on your, uh, your, your iPod, your iPhone, your Whatever device you use, you can listen to it right there on the, uh, on the computer uh, if you so desire. But I really encourage you to go back and listen to these messages, um, especially in regards to last week's message. Uh, the theme last week was shouting over your family. And, uh, and I, I want to really encourage that every one of you uh, engage with that message. If you haven't heard it, if you did hear it, go back and listen to it again. And, uh, and allow the Lord to continue to stir your heart. We're going to keep pressing forward this morning, and the theme this morning with shout is shouting over your city, shouting over your city, shouting over the, your community, the place where you live. So we shout for different reasons, right? We've talked about this the last few weeks. We'll just recap this for a second. We shout for different reasons. You, get, you, you shout when you get excited. I think there's some people right in this area, as Jim was saying. Uh, in fact, it's funny that you guys are all sitting right by each other. This is... Uh, don't kick the Patriots fan, okay? <laughs> Please don't kick the Patriots fan. Um, there's going to be some shouting happening this afternoon as people watch a football game. Uh, in a couple of weeks, the, the Super Bowl, there's going to be some shouting that's going to take place as people get excited about football. We shout warnings. Kids running into the street and there's a car coming. You don't, you don't just say, oh, please don't run in the street. Please come back. No, you're, you're shouting, right? Get out of the street, stop. You shout warnings. We shout praise. This morning I was standing right here, and I love standing up front here in worship because I could hear you all just shouting in praise. And I know that the Lord is blessed as you do that. We even shout in anger sometimes. There's places where you get frustrated or things just get to you, and, and your voice, your volume gets, rises up, right? And, and people know you're probably angry right now because you're shouting. Stop shouting at me. Uh, we shout for all kinds of different reasons. Well, I believe in Scripture God calls us to shout, to make declarations over our homes, over our cities, over our community, and around the world. And, and we've based this whole series out of Joshua chapter 6 and 7 where the Israelites walk into the promised land, and the very first thing they encounter in the promised land is a city called Jericho. And Jericho was a huge city, massive city. The, the, the walls were so big that homes were built right into the walls. Um, and this is their first obstacle in the promised land. And God gives them instruction, and he says, you're going to fight this, this enemy, you're going to go up against this city, but you're not going to do it in a typical way. He says to them, you're going to march around the city six days. You're going to march around the city once for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around seventh time, seven times. And you're not going to say anything. You're going to remain completely silent. Really weird battle plan. Really weird battle plan. And so they do as they're told. And then on the last day, God says, you're going to march seven times. And when you get done, the priests are going to blow the trumpets and when you hear those trumpets sound, you're going to shout with everything inside of you. And so they do that. And of course, the walls come crumbling and tumbling down. And Israel is able to walk into that city and possess that promised land. Um, and there's some instructions that he gives as they do that. We're going to keep pressing ahead here in just a second. But I want to I preface this morning with what I believe is a word from the Lord that uh, I, heard, I heard the Lord just give to me this morning. One of my routines in the morning is I, I like to just check the headlines. I like to know what's happening in the world, not just for information's sake, but it actually helps direct how I pray. Um, I don't want to just pray random prayers. I want to pray very specific prayers. And so if I know there's things happening in the world, 
uh, that need prayer, I can pray specifically for those things. Well, this morning I, I read the news that Anchorage, Alaska had a, a massive earthquake last night, 7.1 earthquake in Anchorage. Now, thankfully, Alaskans are prepared for earthquakes. They have multiple earthquakes. In fact, the largest earthquake in U.S. history uh, happened in Anchorage back in the 50s. And so they've built in a way that, that they're prepared for earthquakes and there's minimal damage, uh, really no injuries to report, just people really shaken up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, I doubt you'll go back to sleep after that. And I was reading this story, and we have family in Anchorage, and so, you know, we're th- and thinking about family and hope everyone's okay. And as I'm just kind of meditating, thinking on that, the Lord starts stirring my heart, and he says, Barry, I'm bringing about an earthquake. I'm starting to shake things up, but not in the physical. That I'm shaking things up in the spiritual realm. I'm starting to unseat and unsettle things. And see, that's what happens in an earthquake. Everything that's not tied down or screwed to a wall comes crashing down. See, an earthquake will expose those things that are built on shaky ground. An earthquake will expose a house that's not being built well. It'll also reveal those things that are built well. The things that stand the test and get through an earthquake can go, wow, that's good construction. Wow, I'm sure glad I put grandma's vase in a place where it wasn't going to fall over during an earthquake. And so it exposes and it reveals those places that are strong and those places that are weak. And I believe the Lord is saying to us as a church, specifically as we engage in this message, shouting over your your city and over your community, God's saying, I'm stirring up and I'm shaking up things in the spiritual realm beyond what we can see. And I believe the word of the Lord would be this, there are things that will stand the test and be revealed to be strong and built on the rock, and there will be things that are revealed and come crashing down that are built on sand. And I believe God wants to start with us today, that he wants to expose and reveal places in our lives that he says, you've built on the sand, not on the rock. You've built on the sand, not on the rock. And when the shaking up happens, if you're built on the sand, you're not going to stand. You're not going to stand. What I love about this word is it's not a condemning word, it's an encouraging word, it's a word of preparation. And so I would invite you this morning, as you hear the message today, would you be honest with yourself? Would you be honest with yourself before the Lord and examine your own life and allow the Spirit of God to settle those things in your life that need to be settled, to establish those things in your life that need to be moved from the sand to the rock, and then actually do it? See, because earthquakes are not, they affect everyone. It's not like you can pick and choose, right? You don't pick when it happens or where it happens. If you live in an earthquake zone like we do, you just know at some point, day or night, it's going to happen, and it happens to everyone equally. As God starts stirring things in the spiritual realm, we will all respond one way or another. My prayer is that we would respond accordingly to the Spirit of God. So this morning... Father God, we ask that you would come and that you would minister to us, Lord, to those weak places, even as we read about Ezekiel and the dry bones, Lord, those things in our lives that have died, those things in our lives that are weak, those things in our lives that we've uh, misplaced and put too much value in, Lord, would you you cause our, our spirit, our minds, our hearts, Lord, to respond to your direction this morning. Lord, that we would be able to move things from the sand to the rock, that we would be able to see things get established the way that you want them to be established, that we will be be able to stand strong in the midst of trials. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've had the opportunity to live in a lot of different places around, uh, around the country and even around the world. In fact, I've lived on two continents and an island. Um, I've lived in a big city and a small city, and a small town. Uh, I've lived in a tropical climate, in an Arctic climate, in a semi-arid climate. I lived in the plains of Africa. It was pretty cool. And here's what I've noticed. Every community is unique. Every community is unique. There's no two communities in the world that are the same. Every community has its own cultures, its own customs, and its own history. Am I right? If you've lived in more than one town, I know I cannot relate to people who like have lived in the same town their whole lives, maybe even the same house. I'm like, I don't, that doesn't even compute for me. 
Um, but if you've lived in more than one place or if you've traveled at all, you'll notice that communities are different. In fact, if you just drive the 210 freeway, you can tell. Um, not in, you don't even have to look at the signs. You can see I've moved into a new community. This is a different, this is a different town. This is a different city. Because those cultures, those customs, those things that, that we identify ourselves with beyond just a name are, are unique. They're absolutely unique. In fact, um, Glendora is one of the things that people love about Glendora. The city is growing like crazy. And there's not a lot of room to grow. So there's even condos and stuff that's right across from the church office. They've torn down a, 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 whole, a whole business park there, and they're building condos right there. There's the ones right on, uh, on Route 66. There's places all over the city, and people are coming to the city like crazy. And for good reason. It's a great place to live. Love Glendora. Now, I recognize some of you in, in here today, you don't live in Glendora um, and, and you live, maybe live in the surrounding communities. I'm going to focus on Glendora because that's where we are. But you can insert whatever city you live in. Um, but, but if you're here, you probably have some understanding of, of Glendora. It's a, it's a great place. In fact, it's called the Pride of the Foothills, right? If you drive under the train tracks, you'll see that. Glendora, Pride of the Foothills. It's known as a family community. Am I right? This is a family community. We, knew, we, knew, we, we know that and we saw that going to football games at the high school. There's a lot of people that show up, and it's not just mom and dad. It's grandmas and grandpas and an- uncles and aunties and neighbors and friends, and, and they come out by the thousands to watch football. It's a family community. Uh, it's a community that has great schools, Glendora Unified School District. In fact, their offices are right out that door. That building next to us is Glendora Unified School District. People move to this city just because it has great schools. And that's important because we love our kids and we want our kids to be in good schools. It's known as a, a relatively safe community. Not a lot of crime. There are not a lot of uh, things that you know, you're, you're wondering, am I going to be safe in my community? It's not perfect by any means, but it's a safe community. And it's conveniently located. I like that. I, I like that we're uh, the same distance to Universal Studios as we are to Disneyland. There's airports all over the place, and you can get to where you need to get, especially now that the 210 goes all the way through. Man, you can just get where you need to be. There's a lot of great things about this city. Now, here's the thing about uh, the word pride, though, and, and I want to preface everything I say today with this. Um, I want to I wanna have an honest conversation about our community, but don't misconstrue any of what I say as being uh, bashing or nitpicking. I want to I wanna have an honest conversation, and so I want to touch on some things that for maybe for some people might be like, oh, well, that, you're kind of touching on a nerve there. That's not my intent, but I believe God wants to expose some things along with this shaking that I'm talking about that, that God wants to bring some revelation. So that's my disclaimer, okay? So no angry emails or anything like that. All right, not that I've ever got one of those. You're all very gracious. But I was thinking about that word pride. Pride of the foothills. Pride is kind of a two-edged sword, isn't it? Pride is a good thing, to take pride in your work, to be proud of your kids, to take pride in, in the things that you value and the things you invest in your, your time in. It's a good thing. The problem is the flip side of pride is that it can become something destructive and arrogant and haughty. It says, I'm, I'm better and I'm not like you and I'm not like that. And so I wanna, we're going to talk about pride a little bit more here in a few minutes. So shouting over our city. As we've talked about shouting and making declarations of our own lives, making declarations of our children, praying things over uh, our homes, that, that there are places where God says, I need you to step up. And I need you to identify things in those places and actually speak to them. In the same way that Joshua and Israel came up to Jericho and, 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 and he says, shout. Because when you raise your voice and you acknowledge God, see, when they shouted, it wasn't even that they were shouting a specific word. What they were doing was walking in obedience to God, right? right? And in the flesh, it didn't make sense. Okay, I'm going to walk up to this brick wall and I'm just going to shout at it and hope that something happens. It's a little ridiculous. The power comes in the obedience where God says, this is what I want you to do. And they said, okay, we'll do what you tell us to do. Because you just parted a river that allowed us to walk through on dry land. 
and we've watched you for the last 40 years uh, provide for us with manna and quail in the desert, and we've seen water come out of a rock. So, yeah, God, you're pretty amazing. So if you tell me to shout at a brick wall, I'm going to shout at the wall. And, of course, they walk in obedience. So it wasn't what they shouted. It was the power behind it. Does that make sense? So when God says to us that we need to shout over our homes, it's not like the shouting itself is the power. It's what God says, I need you to make a declaration over your family, over your home, over your community about who I am and how I've called you to live. And it's in that that the power of God is released and strongholds come tumbling down. Joshua chapter 7, I wanna, I'm going to tell the story of Achan and then I'm actually going to read in verse 18 through 26. It's a long chapter. I don't want to read the whole thing. So I'm going to, I'm going to sum- summarize the first portion. I actually need to make mention of this last week. I, I misspoke. I got so excited. I got ahead of myself. And I mentioned that Aiken had taken devoted things from Ai, and, and that wasn't the case. He kept devoted things from Jericho when God had said, don't keep for yourself any of the things devoted to destruction. And Ai was the place where they experienced defeat. So here's how the story goes in Joshua chapter 7. Jericho is defeated. The walls come down. They go in and everything that God has said, devote those things to destruction, kill everything. Everything that is alive, everything that is breathing, you have to, you have to take it out. Because anything that's left will leave a seed or a root of destruction that will come up and rise itself up against God. And then he says, God says to them, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, those belong to me, and you bring those into the the, the storehouse, into the temple, because those belong to me. But the people got nothing. Now, the custom was when you went into battle and you took a city, you got plunder. You didn't just get the city, you got the people's stuff. And it was how a lot of the wealth traded back and forth in those times. So it was really uncommon, first of all, to shout at a wall and then to, to defeat the city and then not get anything. The livestock, any of it, God said, it belongs to me. Well, the next chapter in chapter 7, there's the city Ai. And Joshua sends up some spies and he goes, go check out that city. That's the next city on the list that we're going to take on. And he says, go check out that city and come back and give me a report. So they go up, and they're feeling pretty confident now because they just saw this city come crumbling down. And they come back to to Joshua, and they say, listen, we got this. No big deal. A couple thousand guys, maybe 3,000 soldiers. We got it. We'll go up there. We'll take care of business. No problem. Joshua said, fine, make it happen. And so they got the, the, the soldiers together, and they go up to Ai, and they get beaten badly and they come running back ai the the warriors in ai the the fighting men in ai drive them back 36 of the israelite soldiers die in that assault they come back and they bring the report to joshua and joshua falls on his knees before god and he says god why did you bring us out of the desert into this place only to have us destroyed by our enemies can i just interject here It's funny how quickly we forget the victories, isn't it? They just destroyed the biggest, baddest city in the land, and they get one small beating, and Joshua's like, oh, God. And God says, whoa, 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 time out. God didn't say time out. I was saying time out. In the Greek, that means, no, I'm just kidding. He says, wait a second, they're sitting in the camp. There's sin in the camp. Someone in the camp didn't do what I told them to do back in Jericho. And because of that, this destruction has been visited on you just like I told you it would be. And so Joshua's tune changes. He goes, wait a second. Okay, well, then we need to figure out where this is. And so they go through this whole process. They assemble the whole, the whole camp of Israel. Now, remember, this is over 2 million people. This is not like a, a small crowd there's a lot of people. And so they go with the priests and they start by lot, they start deciding, okay, who, which clan is it? Which tribe is it? And which family? And, and finally they get it weeded down and there's one family left and there's this guy named Achan. And Joshua stands in front of Achan and he starts questioning him and he says, Achan, what have you done? What have you done? 
So reading in verse 18 in chapter 7, let's read together here. He says this, And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over them a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. And therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. The story goes on. Israel goes back to Ai. And this time, they're victorious. This time, they're victorious. It's a harsh story, and some of these stories in Joshua and, and the stories of Israel, contextually for us, are hard to wrap our head around because we're going, wow, that's, that's pretty violent. See, but, but the message here is this. God has no tolerance for sin. God has zero tolerance for sin. He has zero tolerance for disobedience. There's no part of God that says, Okay, just a little bit, that's all, all right. Achan's sin affected the entire community. In fact, remember, 36 people lost their lives because of Achan's sin. 36 families whose husbands and fathers didn't come home from battle because Achan coveted a bar of gold, some silver, and a cloak. And here's what's amazing about the stuff that Achan took. Did he get to enjoy it? No, he buried it in, a, in the ground. It was in a hole in the ground. But he wanted it. He wanted it. Church, your actions and my actions don't just affect ourselves. The things that we do and the things that we say and the things that we allow and the things that we say yes to and the things that we give permission to affect the lives of those around us and can bring about destruction that we don't even recognize or know about. I know just as a dad, the decisions I make affect my kids, which in turn will affect their kids. That the decisions I make could affect generations of mulocks. There's a responsibility that lies there. See, but it's not just familial. You have neighbors. There's people that you live in community with. Right here, we have a community of people. Your decisions affect the, the, the lives of the people sitting around you. And there's a responsibility that comes with being a part of community. The name of our church, New Community. Why? Well, because we as a culture don't know what community is. We live in proximity to each other, not in community. Community is this. I care about you. I would give you the cloak off my back or the shirt off my back to cover your nakedness. I will go the extra mile for you. I will lay my life down for you. I will, I will care for your family as if it's my family. That's what community is, that we're going to come together and do things together. See, we don't live in community. We live in proximity at best, in competition at worst. See, what a lot of our neighborhoods look like is this. Well, my neighbor has that. 
My neighbor put in a pool. I better put in a pool. My neighbor got a new car. I better get a new car. My neighbor painted their house. I better do something to my house. And this goes back and forth, and we lose all sense of community, and it becomes about what I want. And God says, that's not my heart for my people. It's not my heart for my people. And last week, we talked about footholds and how the enemy looks for little places where he can get a hold in our lives and start wreaking havoc. James says that our en- the enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking those he would devour. And he is looking daily for places in your life and opportunities to bring about destruction in your home and in your family. Achan's sin affected the entire camp. People died. People died because of Achan. And so there was an accounting that had to happen where God makes a statement to the entire camp as they move into the promised land. Achan, his family, his livestock, everything he possessed, the gold, his tent, everything. It was stoned to death or it was burned, it was consumed, and then they piled a pile of rocks over it as a statement to that community that would say, don't think you can get away with cheating God. Don't think for a second that God doesn't see and he doesn't know and he cannot bless that which is outside of his commands. Now here's here's the sticking point and the good thing for us. I'll start with the sticking point. We serve the same God. He hasn't changed. It's the same God, the same God who was speaking to Joshua is the same God we serve today. And the Bible says he doesn't change which makes me a little nervous. (laughs) But Jesus and the cross, and God made a way through the cross, through his son, through the sacrifice for us so that we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear of being stoned or burned alive. But he does say this, you still need to walk in obedience. See, God said to Israel, I'm going to give you this law. And the law came down to this. If you do the things I command you to do, you will be blessed. And if you choose to walk in disobedience, you'll be cursed. That's it. God says to us, I've given you a new law. Jesus completed and fulfilled the law. I've given you a way to salvation and eternal life. But he still stands in that place. He says, choose life and walk in the ways that I've prescribed for you or things aren't going to go the way you want them to go. And this isn't a control issue. This is an obedience issue where we bring things under the authority of Christ. So what do we do? How do we shout over our city? And what are the things that we need to do in order to see change come about? Because I believe that God is bringing sweeping change to our city, starting here in Glendora and going out from here. And not that we're a church that has the corner on anything or we've got it all figured out, but I believe that God is looking for any believer, any man, woman, boy, or girl, any church, any pastor that would say, God, I'm committed to walking in your ways without compromise, and he's going to use that to affect our neighbors, to bring life and blessing and healing and to drive back darkness. And it's not so much that, oh, we've got it figured out. I think what we have to do as a church is say, God, would you please start here? We desire what you want for us. I mentioned last week that the, the, the problem with footholds is they don't stay footholds. A rock climber can climb a rock face that has these little cracks in it. They can climb a, a rock face that you, you and I would look at and go, that's as smooth as that wall. And they can get up it. But strong, footholds don't stay footholds. They become strongholds. And a stronghold, by definition, is a base of operation. Picture a fortified city or a castle. A castle is a stronghold. It's a place where the troops can go, they can get refreshed, they can reset their game plan and then go back out and cause destruction. And the Bible says that the enemy of our soul is looking for footholds so that he can then move move into a place where he establishes strongholds. He wants to establish bases of operations, a basis of operation 
in our lives. And unlike the castles in Europe, if you see pictures or posters, if you ever toured Europe, you can go, wow, look at that castle up on that hill. Or wow, look at that fortress. That's incredible. See, these are not physical strongholds. They're spiritual strongholds that find their place internally in people's hearts and minds. They evidence themselves in distorted thinking, thinking that's not brought under the authority of Jesus Christ and under his word. It's the thing in Achan's life that caused him to act on his covetous motive. There was a stronghold that had been established in his, and that stronghold inside of Achan said this, my desire for a bar of gold is greater than my desire to serve and obey God. And it twists things around. And you see, the thing with strongholds is they will get bigger and stronger the more place we give them, the more time we give them. God says, don't, don't do that. Don't go there. See, a stronghold isn't just a stronghold. Every stronghold has a strong man. Stronghold is just a base. See, Ephesians says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And if I give place in my life, I, if I allow a stronghold to be built in my life, and there's a de- demonic force that's behind that, if they find a place and go, hey, we can, we can operate here. There's room. Bible says that, that that demonic force will go and invite their friends and say, hey, come check this place out. And it will grow. It will grow. So we then, as the body of Christ, have to establish ourselves and identify strongholds and destroy the strong men. In fact, that's my key point today. And I'm going to have a couple other things I want to share. But, but as the church, as the body of Christ, that we are called to identify strongholds and then destroy the strong men, to put to death the thing that is wreaking havoc in our lives. See, if I, go, if I take my car into the shop because it's making a weird noise, and the mechanic comes back and he says, listen, you've got a main bearing that's gone bad. Um, if you keep driving, it, the motor's just going to explode. And I go, hey, thanks for the information. I really appreciate it. And I keep driving the car. And every time I hear the noise, I'm now aware that that's the main bearing. Have I helped anything? No, in fact, I'm, I'm moving in ignorance. Identifying the problem isn't enough. We actually have to do something about it. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. As a church, both in our personal lives, in this place, and even in your community, God's calling you to identify strongholds and destroy the strong man. And here's the problem, I believe, is that we have a serious case in the church of it's not my job. It's those people, they're choosing to live however they want. It's not my job. Someone else will do it. Wait, I, I, don't, I didn't see anything. And yet around us, <laughs> around us, lives are being torn apart. And God says, I put you in that neighborhood. I put you in that city. I put you in that workplace. I put you in that school. Not just so that you could be comfortable and have fun. I've called you to be a prophetic witness of my kingdom, which is what he called Israel to, by the way. That the promised land wasn't just about Israel. God established Israel and the promised land to be a prophetic witness to all of the nations around. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see king after king who comes to Israel and they realize, you know what, your God is the God. He's the true God. Daniel, right, before Nebuchadnezzar, who, Nebuchadnezzar goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Your God is the true God. The prophetic witness of our lives will cause people to look to God when they've never looked to him before. So you're not just in your community just by accident. I really enjoy watching documentaries, and uh, I especially enjoy documentaries about World War II and different units of of the military. Um, The Navy SEALs hold a special fascination for me. I, I watched a a documentary just recently about the Navy SEALs 
in Ramadi, Iraq in 2006. See, Ramadi was this city in Iraq that was overrun. The U.S. forces, the army, the Marine Corps had come in and they had made great strides in that nation. In fact, as I was thinking about that that whole operation, it contrasted the, the war in 1991, which I remember watching on CNN when I was in high school, where the U.S. forces went into Iraq pretty much unopposed. Just, just ran right up to Baghdad and unopposed. Went back in in, two th- in the 2000s, right after, after 9-11, and found a different story, kind of like AI. Whoa, this wasn't as easy as we thought it would be last time. Where they had fought street by street, and they got this city under control for the most part. But right in the heart of the city of Ramadi was this one area that was under Al-Qaeda control, and, and they just couldn't get them out. Patrols would go in, the, the Marine Corps and the U.S. Army would go in, and there was nothing they could do. They could never gain any ground. And it had become a stronghold, a, stronghold, a base of operation for Al-Qaeda in that area. And it was affecting the other communities because they would come in, get trained, get resupplied, and then go back out and, and do, you know, have attacks and IEDs and all of this stuff. And so, military strategists and specialists made this statement. He said, our forces, our military, cannot be victorious in Ramadi. We don't have the training, we don't have the experience, we don't have the tools we need to win. It's a lost cause. So they called the Navy SEALs, who went into a season of training, specifically designed for Ramadi, and they entered that battle to assist their brothers in the Marines and in the, in, the, in the Army. And they identified pretty quickly that just trying to come out from the outside in wasn't going to work. And so they devised this crazy plan where one SEAL team, just one team, went in by night up the river, right on the Euphrates River, and they inserted themselves right into the middle of this Al-Qaeda-held stronghold snuck in under the cover of darkness into a place that really wasn't that fortified and that heavily guarded because Al-Qaeda thought, no one's ever going to come in here. And they established, they went in there, they established an outpost in the middle of the night. This operation just happened. They took out any resistance and then they drove hundreds of tanks right into this outpost, right in the middle of this stronghold. They put up a fortified area around it positioned snipers to take out any opposition, and they were constantly under attack. But it was the turning point in the battle for Ramadi. See, the Navy SEALs went in and destroyed the stronghold, and they took out the strongmen. And from there, from the inside going out, the battle started being won. Of course, I watched that, and I thought, that's no no coincidence that I watched that, because you see, that's how God wants us to operate. It's not about us just identifying strongholds and going, God, I just hope that you do something about that. Or you might be in a place where you might even be like the analyst and go, there's no way I can win this battle. It's a lost cause. There's no way that I can be victorious in this part of my life. It's never going to happen. Where God says, no, 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 no. You're thinking that you're just infantry, but you're not. You're special forces. See, because I've given you my Holy Spirit. I've given you my Holy Spirit. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Destroy strongholds. Can we get that up on the screen? The weapons of our warfare, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. Church, that's you. That's you in your home. That's you in your community. That's you in your neighborhood. That's you in your school. That's you in your workplace. That God says, I've given you divine authority to tear down the strongholds that you identify in the place where you live. That God has snuck you in to the middle and to the heart of a community under the cover of his Holy Spirit so that you can pop up in your neighborhood and start doing damage for the kingdom and driving back darkness, 
destroying strongholds starts with you. It starts with you. Your life will be the thing that shouts over a city. It's your life. Your life will make, make a declaration to the enemy about what's acceptable, what's okay. Your life will make a difference. Your life will shout to your neighbors and to your friends and your coworkers that you stand for something different. And for too long, the church in America has operated from a place of compromise where we thought we could have our cake and eat it too. That I get to go to church on Sunday and put a smile on and raise my hands in worship and then go into the rest of the week and compromise and be okay. Remember the same God that dealt with Achan. Now, there's grace and there's gentleness, but can I tell you that when we stand before the judgment seat one day, God will call us to give an account, and he will ask us, what did you do with your life? How did you impact that neighborhood? I put you on that street so that you can have an impact in that neighborhood. Wow, Lord, I didn't even know my neighbor's name. In fact, I kind of didn't like him because they had a barking dog. When we lived in Rancho Santa Margarita, we had a neighbor who had a barking dog. And even the people in our lives that were avid dog lovers would come to our house and they would start twitching because this dog barked and barked and barked. He would bark for hours, literally hours on end. And we're just going, Lord, help. <laughs> and we asked. And in fact, the first encounter I had with my neighbor, I'd Popped my head over the fence one day. We we're working in the backyard, and I said to him, you know, hey, how's it going? Hey, can I just ask you, you know, your dog is barking a lot, and he blew up at me. Like, that's all I said. Well, your kids, blah, 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 and your kids are antagonizing my dog, and, and I felt just everything inside of me. First of all, you're telling me, you're, you're falsely accusing my kids of doing, you know, they're throwing lemons at my dog, and I'm like, no, they're not. And so I just... I, I started shouting. My voice started. I felt the blood pressure going up. And, and finally, my kids still make fun of me about this. But I, I'm looking at the guy, and I just go, I'm just trying to be nice. <laughs> and, he, and they're all in the background just laughing. In fact, I think there was talk of actually making a T-shirt that just says, I'm just trying to be nice. It didn't come across that way. And so we had to choose. We had to choose to ignore the dog. And I went back to him a few months later. <laughs> Took that long. <laughs> Should have gone sooner. And I just said, hey, I, I, I apologize if, you know, if I made you angry, if anything I said. I, I just, and, and he apologized. They were in a difficult situation. Turns out they were going through some stuff with their son who who the dog belonged to. And there's this whole story. We ended up, we never became real close with them. But the Lord did tear down some walls, and we got to partner with them in prayer because we realized he was going through some health issues uh, that were affecting him. Uh, they were going through some stuff with their son, and we just said, you know what, we'll, we'll just pray for you. We'll just pray for you, and, and that's the position we took. God will put you in your neighborhood for a reason to reach the people around you, but you've got to be aware it starts with you. So what are we up against? I want to identify... Very quickly, four things that I believe, and this is just a short list. Now, I'm speaking specifically about Glendora because that's where we are. That's where I live. Many of you live here in Glendora. I think there are surrounding communities. You can, the, the list applies. Again, this is not as, meant as an indictment, but it's meant to open our eyes. So what are we up against? What are some of the strongholds that I've perceived in our community? First would be this, pride. Not the good kind. We learned pretty quick after moving to Glendora that Glendorans love Glendora. And they're all about Glendora. To the point that Glendorans are like, no, we're not Azusa. We're Glendora. We're not, we're not Covina. We're Glendora. Am I right? I mean, it's, it's pretty pervasive in the city. Now, I like community pride. But the pride that says I'm better than you is not of the Lord. 
It's not from God. I want to have pride in my community. I want to take pride in the things that God is doing. I want to be able to tell people, guys, you, you're, you would love our city. But the kind of pride that says, I'm not that, and I'm thankful. In fact, Jesus speaks against it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. You can insert there, one righteous and one a sinner. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man who went to his house uh, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The kind of pride that says, I'm better than you. I'm better than you because of my position. I'm better than you because of my job. I'm better than you because of my family. I'm better than you for whatever reason. God says, I don't recognize that. I can't work with that. That heart is against me, not for me. Even though the words of the Pharisee were, oh Lord, I praise you because I'm so awesome before your sight. And I give to you and I pray and I fast. God says, it's nothing because your heart is misplaced. And yet the sinner Anytime in the New Testament, by the way, you read about tax collectors, it's the worst person they could find. <laughs> Don't be drawing comparisons. The tax collector was the worst. They were the cheat. They, were, they stole. They were dishonest. They abused people. They leveraged their position. So whenever you see the tax, so a tax collector beating his chest before God saying, be merciful to me, it meant something. And God says, he went home justified. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, God doesn't call us to pride. He calls us to humility. Humility sees other people. The story of the Good Samaritan. It was humility that caused a foreigner to minister to the needs of the guy that got robbed and beat up. The Pharisee and the priest walked by on the other side and said, I won't get my hands dirty. Your life's kind of a mess. How often do we walk around, people go, ooh, sinner, your life's a mess. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Second would be this, the pursuit of wealth. The pursuit of wealth is a stronghold. Achan took for himself what belonged to God and people died because of it. A bar of gold and some silver. But you know what's incredible is that God had so much more in store for Achan. So much more in store. But that little bit, and Achan was just honest about it. As I saw it, I coveted it, I coveted it, I took it. The pursuit of wealth will destroy lives. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into, in, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That there is pain in pursuing wealth. 
There is destruction in pursuing wealth. By the way, one of the most misquoted scriptures in all of, of scripture, because a lot of people say it is love of money is the root of all evil. Not true. All kinds of evil. It's the starting point because there's this insatiable appetite for more. Right? There's a reason that the Powerball was $1.5 billion. You know what drives that number up? Is people buying Powerball tickets. Why? Because we believe that $1.5 billion will satisfy my needs. And God says, no, I will satisfy your needs according to my riches and glory. And I laugh at $1.5 billion. That's pocket change to God. Yet we get so wrapped up in that. And for every person that I heard say, God, if you let me win, I'll tithe to my church. I take it. No, I'm just kidding. I would wonder. See, because I would ask of that person, were you tithing before? I heard of a pastor who someone in his church won the lottery, and the guy wrote a check to tithe on the, the winnings. And the pastor said, no, put your checkbook away, because you never tithed before this day. David said this, I will not sacrifice that to the Lord, which cost me nothing. And we start pressing ourselves into a culture that we're hungry for money, and it takes the place of God in our lives. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Can I tell you, God knows that you need to pay the phone bill. He knows that you have to pay the gas bill. He knows that you need food on the table. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's already yours. God just says, seek me first. You can pursue wealth and monetary gain, and God says you'll always come up short. It doesn't matter how many zeros are in your checking balance. If I'm not first, it will never be enough. Third thing is this, comfort. Francis Chan made this statement. If we were meant to be comfortable, we wouldn't need a comforter. The Holy Spirit, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is that he is our comforter. If you were meant to be comfortable, you wouldn't need a comforter. Proverbs 24, 33, I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it is all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. We have this idea in our culture that we're supposed to be comfortable, that the pursuit of my life is I make enough money so that I'm not like other people so that I can just be comfortable. I work hard so that I can just rest. God says, no, I've blessed you with the ability to work hard so that you can honor me with your life, with your job, with your finances, and expand my kingdom. Very different. God's not calling us to comfort. He's calling us to advance his kingdom. Calling us to take back ground. Not a comfortable process. Can I just tell you, going out of your way to meet your neighbors and talk to them is not always comfortable. I just want to go home and just do my thing, just watch TV and just be with my family. And God says, yeah, but I asked you to talk to your neighbor. Yeah, and that's not comfortable. And he goes, yeah, but he's going to hell. He's going to hell. And I want you to go and speak life so that he can spend eternity in heaven with me. Yeah, but Lord, I just want to be comfortable. That's a stronghold. And finally is this one, divorce. Satan's plan to destroy families, and this is not one that's unique to Glendora or Azusa or Laverne. This is true around the world. This is true <clears throat> around the world. See, the family, the home, is God's base of operation. You might have thought it's the church, it's here. No, 
This is where we come to get encouraged. This is the, the rally. God's base of operation is your home. And Satan knows that if he can tear your home apart, he's won. And so he divides husband and wife. And if he can introduce divorce speak, not even divorce itself, but if he can introduce the language of divorce into your home, your effectiveness as a soldier of God is gone. It's going to diminish. John 10.10 says that Satan has come to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I came to bring life and life abundant. Now, I may just address what some of you might be thinking. Divorce is a reality, and it's more than likely that there's those in this room who would say, I've, I've walked that road. There is the cross, and there is grace. And God even says there's places and there's situations where he goes, there are places where it's appropriate for a couple to walk through a divorce process. But can I just tell you, sometimes it's like I counsel people, I've counseled people who are going, well, I'm just looking for the out. And God's like, no, that's not my heart. I want this to win. I want this to succeed. I want your marriage to stand in the midst of a world, in the midst of a community where divorce is just, well, it's just the thing you do. It just got too hard. It got too difficult. We weren't getting along irreconcilable differences, whatever the heck that is. And God says, no, my heart is for husband and wife to be joined together. In fact, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, God says to the Israelites, the second thing you do, you can read about the first thing in the first part of Malachi chapter 2, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering and accepts it with favor from your hand. So the picture here is they're bringing an offering to the Lord and laying it on the altar and God saying, I'm not receiving your offering. I'm rejecting your offering. The tears of the tears of the people saying, but God, I've brought you an offering. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed before, between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did, not, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was uh, the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard, guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God says, I've brought man and wife together and I've joined their spirit and I've made them one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate, including the two that have been joined. And what was God seeking in all of this? Godly offspring. Husbands and wives that would raise children to honor the Lord so that generations would stand for him and honor him. Can I tell you that in our community, in this world, in this culture, this is the place where the enemy is coming against us. It is the place where he is wreaking havoc and destruction. And can I tell you, the church cannot stay in a place anymore where we go, it's someone else's problem. So what do we do? What's our part in that? What starts at home? It starts with you. Tend to your marriage. Tend to your family. Take care of the four walls that surround you and say, in this house, like Joshua, as for me and my house. See, because your healthy marriage and healthy relationships will, will shout to the community. So that when other people go, you know what? We used to hear you shouting all the time at each other, and we don't hear that anymore. What happened? Let me tell you the testimony of what God's done in our marriage and our, our lives. And as we do that, we sneak into the enemy's stronghold and we kick him out. We dispose him. We say, you get out of here. You have no place. I believe that God wants in this city, in Glendora, for marriages to be restored, for homes to be restored. How do we shout over our city? We take care of our homes. We allow the Lord to establish himself in our homes. 
And from there, the base of operation on your street. On the count of three, just yell out the name of your street that you live on. One, two, three. Every one of those streets, there's a base of operation that God has established to reach your neighborhood. It's time for us to shout over our city. Can we stand together? This is a partial list. These are just things that, that I see, but there's more. And God's given you eyes to see, and he's given you the authority. He's given you his spirit to declare over your neighborhood, over your city, over your town, over your, your workplace, over your school, the things of the Lord to drive back darkness. I'm going to pray as, as I do if the worship team would come forward. Father God, recognize this morning that these words being said out loud, Lord, are stoking even now the anger of the enemy, that he has no pleasure and no joy in what he's hearing. Lord, I pray a covering over this body, over this covenant fellowship, that you would encourage, that you would build up, that you would strengthen, that you would give us a portion of your spirit so that, Lord, we can shout and declare things over the city of Glendora and see those walls come tumbling down. Those places, Lord, where the enemy has established strongholds, we speak to them in the name of Jesus and say, you have no place, you have no authority, get out. We pray over the homes and the marriages, uh, Lord, in this church, in this city, Lord, we say that they would be healthy and strong, that husbands and wives would be reconciled to each other, that children would be reconciled to, to each other and to their parents. Father God, that you would cause us to be beacons of hope and life and blessing in the places that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.